I know you're gonna dig this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another Fun-Filled Fun Facts episode of Conversations about Dot, Dot, Dot. My name is Will. Today, I get the honor and privilege, and I try to, I'll always say that, because I always feel like anytime I get a chance to talk to somebody, it's an honor to do so, so people don't have to give you their time. But uh, when I got this man's time, it's really more like a wow moment for me. Uh, Joseph Illich, uh, one of the co-founders of Milestone Entertainment. Um, group that brought us some great characters like Icon and Hardware and Static Shock and the Blood Syndicate. And then, you know, to go from there to be one of the first black men to ever be brought on by DC to do the No Man Land storyline with Batman. And then, you know, currently work with Heavy Metal and all the, so many other things. And in addition to that, now a new children's book out. And I wanted to sit down and talk with him about uh, Judge Kim and the kids court and all the other cool things he's done. Uh, so, Mr. Illich, first of all, say hello to the people. Uh, hi, everyone. Great to be here. Will, thank you for having me. And just to start off, credit where it's due, I'm one of the first generation Milestone employees. I started there in 1993. I do not um, have the credit of being one of the co-founders. That goes to Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, Michael Davis, and Derek Dingle, and also Christopher Priest. But... I was one of the first generation employees. I started as an intern and worked my way up from the bottom. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about Mr. McDuffie. He's one of those people that I wished I could have met, but never got a chance to meet. But you've had the privilege, obviously, of being in the same room with him, talking with him and different things like that. So Dwayne was one of my first mentors. He was certainly my first editorial mentor. And in a number of ways, he was the big brother that I never had. Um, probably the smartest individual that I've ever met in terms of IQ. Dwayne was absolutely brilliant. And he showed me what being an editor was. And before that, I didn't understand it. I didn't care about it. And when he showed me what it was and what it entailed, I realized that that was my vocation and my purpose in comic books in this industry to help create and facilitate good stories, to bring together talented people, to guide them and help facilitate their elevation to be better creators and to sometimes be their advocate when it's needed. And of course, I mentioned Batman, and, and 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 I dare not walk away from this totally because because at the time of recording, of course, we lost uh, Kevin Conroy. And yes. So have you had yes. a chance to to meet, be in the room with him, and talk with him, and things like that? Is there? A... My goodness, I only wish I had met the man. It would be fair to say that he is in part responsible for my time at DC Comics as an editor of Batman because Batman, the animated series, that would follow after Tim Burton's first Batman film and totally reframe and recontextualize how we as a culture and how Warner Brothers, by extension, viewed Batman, his world, 
and those characters. So that animated series was so important in laying the groundwork for Batman becoming the most profitable superhero IP of the Warner Brothers Discovery apparatus. Mm -hmm. And so having the opportunity to be the first editor of color on the Batman line of books for DC Comics and coming into something like No Man's Land, that was possible because Batman the Animated Series legitimized Batman and his characters at that point in history and going forward. You know, it would be in the wake of The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen and Lynn Varley, and then Tim Burton's Batman film with Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton. But Batman the Animated Series would be the final part of that triangle that really super legitimized the character and the, the possibilities of mature storytelling that would then lead the way to No Man's Land and the revamping of the entire Batman line for the year 2000 relaunch that I was a part of. So talk to me a little bit about No Man's Land and how you were able to shape that with that information. No Man's Land, when I got to the Batman department, No Man's Land was just beginning. You know, credit for the genesis of the idea goes to Jordan Gorfinkel, who was an editor, a a high-ranking Batman editor. And the story is that he went away one weekend. He went home on a Friday, and he came in Monday with this 10-page treatment, and he gave it to Denny O'Neill, who is the Batman group editor, my second editorial mentor, one of the greatest editors ever in American comic books. And the story is Denny read it, and he said, this is either going to get us all fired or this is going to be the amazing, most amazing thing to happen to Batman in the last 10 to 20 years. Wow. And so it was a bold, bold experiment. When I got there, it was just underway. The first thing that I did coming into the group was I went through the office supplies catalog and I ordered the biggest whiteboard that was in the catalog, which was four feet by five feet, I think. Okay. And it was on a desk in my office. And that was the chart that I would look at. It's the first thing that I would see when I would go into the office every day. And it's the last thing that I would see before I would leave. And that was the overview of the progress of all of the books. And because No Man's Land was a weekly storyline for one year, if one book was late, it would all fall apart like dominoes. So no books could be late. So I had all the books up there color-coded at every stage, black, red, and green. And so anyone could walk into the office and see where No Man's Land was tracking from a production standpoint. And as part of the editorial group, there were various stories and books that I was the sole editor of, various stories that I provided editorial support. I read all the scripts, worked with all the artists, was able to provide some nuggets of ideas here and there, but really it was a testament to the amazing teamwork of the Batman editorial group of various colleagues and other groups in the DC superhero universe. And that Paul Levitz, who was president and publisher at the time, decided to 
let the Batman editorial group take a chance with it because there were various people who didn't think it was going to work. Mm -hmm. But it ended up reestablishing Batman as the top selling character of DC Comics. It led to the year 2000 relaunch, which would give us our first Batgirl series with Cassandra Kane, the seminal detective comics run by Greg Rucka and Sean Marnbro, so many different things. Um, Batman Gotham Knights by Devin Grayson and Dale Eaglesham, so many great books. Um, and that's when I took over Birds of Prey, mm -hmm. um, which was an amazing book to work on and will always be a career highlight for me. I had the chance to talk to Damien Scott a few years ago, back actually during the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> because of course we're just like, you know, well, you know, he was like, well, I've got nothing else going right now. So yeah, brother, talk to somebody. <laughs> yeah, Damien, what Damien contributed to No Man's Land and the co-creation of Cassandra Kane as Batgirl can never be overstated. Mm -hmm. He's he's a true genius. He's a friend. And I remember this is when I knew how special Damien was. My office, the walls would have all these 11 by 17 copies of different covers of different books that hadn't come out yet, because that would be my way of seeing what's to come. Mm -hmm. And a group of high school students came to visit the DC Comics offices, and they came into my office, and all the different artists that I had up, and the one that they asked about was a Damien Scott cover. And that's when I understood that he was uniquely special because his work spoke to young people like no one else's could. And I had about 12 to 15 different artists on the wall, their work, but Damien is the one they asked about. Yeah, I think when I first saw his Cassandra Kane, I was just like, there was a bounce to it. Uh, there was a bounce to it that was different and unique, but then also there was more of an urban feel to it. So it drew one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Wow, this is really cool! And so as I got to buy more of the books, I own I think the first four volumes of the trades because it's like I, as an artist myself, I want to study this. I want to figure out like what is he doing with different things to make things work. Right, right. His his work is amazingly fluid fluid and dynamic and energetic and you look at his work and you feel like he enjoys drawing mm -hmm. he enjoys making those illustrations i see his work no matter if it's spider-man cassandra kane um stephanie brown as robin for the short time that she was robin when damien was drawing the book no matter what the character is you always look at the work and feel like he's enjoying himself mm -hmm. And it definitely jumped off, jumps off the page, you know. One hundred percent, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so, of course, you've worked for many other places. You've worked with Lion Forge. You've worked with Valiant. You've worked with uh, AWBW. You're, I believe, currently working with Heavy Metal. Is that correct? Is that yes, correct? I'm the executive editor of Heavy Metal right now. Okay. And so, and Heavy Metal is my main client. I am a freelance editor. Okay. So I have a number of clients, and one of the things that I do is I provide editorial guidance and I provide consultations for people and companies with pitches for different projects. So 
I'm the executive editor of Heavy Metal, and they are a main client. But I've been blessed that I have a really diversified portfolio of clients and getting to help different people make their ideas better right. and put them out into the world and get publishers to give them a shot. That's really rewarding for me. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely like I, I, my first introduction to heavy metal was, you know, my dad and my, step, my stepdad and his, my uncle would trade comic books every couple of weeks. And so one point, one of the bags, my uncle was in the military for a while. He had gotten a hold of a bunch of heavy metal magazines. And so, of course, he trades it to my dad, not telling him, of course, that they're in there. And so then my dad's like, oh, this is really cool. Not looking at the books, just handing them to us. And then my mom looked at one of them. She was like, what are you, what are you letting them read? <laughs> yeah, heavy metal. I first discovered it when I was in high school at 13. And there was no way that I was going to start buying it. Because if my mother had ever found any copies in the house, she would have thrown me out of the house. Because mm -hmm. she would have considered it pornography. Because... Yeah. It was mature content, and it started as a reprint of a French magazine called Metal Herlant mm -hmm. that was really um, mature content stories from a variety of French artists, some of whom legendary French artists. We're talking about people like Mobius, people like Droulet, um, so many, and so... Juan Jimenez, who unfortunately um, we lost um, yeah. during the early years of the pandemic. He passed away in 2020, I believe it was. And so bringing that to America, that just showed a possibility of what could be done in comics that Marvel and DC at the time weren't capturing. No right. publisher in America was capturing. Heavy Metal would go on to really be the pebble in the pond and lead to Marvel starting Epic Magazine, basically laying the groundwork for a comic book industry that would welcome the Vertigo line of books, mm -hmm. which then leads to so many other publishers these days, like Vault Comics. Um, so Heavy Metal really was an important fixture in the evolution of comics in the United States. And so being able to work there is a real honor. You couldn't have turned told that 13 year old me mm -hmm. at high school of art and design that one day I would be working at heavy metal. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 incredible just to hear about. I mean, I looked, went to your website, saw some of the artwork, and I'm like, man, that looks really cool. That looks really dope. I'm loving some of the stuff and some of the characters that are in there. And I mean, Think about heavy metal in a way for us as Americans too. Is it there are good stories in there too? Like it's not just a bunch of crazy. That's know, right. I mean, that's right. Yeah. And the art, you know, the art spoke to you immediately. That's what heavy metal is supposed to do. It, you know, the first level is the art. Mm -hmm. Before anyone gets to the words, it's the art. The art has to pull them in, and the stories have to keep them there, mm -hmm. right? So first thing is the art has to be of a style, of a level, of a quality that it makes you want to dive in. And then you read the stories and you get into the characters and you get into daring concepts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, you know what? You know, this is for me. This speaks to me in a way that characters, 
that are owned by large corporations, beloved characters can't speak to people because, you know, when you're talking about Batman, Batman is a multi-trillion dollar intellectual property. And because of that, there are places you cannot go with Batman and maybe you shouldn't. At heavy metal, we can go to those dangerous places. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when they did Batman Damn, and there was that brief thing yes. where there was stuff that was yes, and yes, that from an yes. artistic standpoint, I'm going okay. Well, if I'm an art student, one of the things that most people do at some point is they do new studies to study the body, and so you have to. But I saw the what I saw the because I owned for a very short time before I sold it because the book went from like cover price to like over $150 because they stopped printing the thing. <laughs> I was like, well, do I keep this or do I get rid of it? I mean, in this situation, it's kind of like, I'm making money. <laughs> right, right, right. I may still have my copy of Batman Damned One, I don't know, but that's an example of the rules of an intellectual property like Batman mm-hmm. and what you cannot do because Batman is so multi-generational that reconciling a Batman that has partial nudity in a world where Batman is also marketed to children, preteens, that cannot be reconciled on a corporate level. And so even if you look at all the Batman films, if you really study them, there are a lot of things you cannot do in the Batman films. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can push maturity of an idea, but when you start getting into things like nudity, when you start getting into things like graphic depiction of sex, you cannot go there with the Batman. And there are reasons why. Mm-hmm. And so Batman damn was an eye-opener to a number of people regarding how pliable that character is. And, you know, we can say character, and for us as readers, our relationship with the Batman, the Batman is a character. But in a global context, the Batman is an intellectual property of high value. And so it cannot be endangered, right? And that's really interesting on that. I mean, what I, I it, that's so, that's deep. That's deep level stuff right there. That's like, that's like masterclass what I want on intellectual property. <laughs> you have to listen, you have to know when I started working at Milestone, that was the first time that I saw a Bible. And the Milestone Bible is probably 200 pages. I actually have a copy of it, and it had the four. Mate, the four launch series, Hardware, Icon, Static, and Blood Syndicate, the world, the characters, the rules, springboards. When I went to Batman, there was a Batman Bible. So the Bibles are basically the guidance for editors who are the caretakers to take care of the intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And part of that is protecting those intellectual properties from things that violate their rules. Right. Right. And the world of the Batman, the character and his supporting characters are governed by rules. Mm -hmm. Okay. And within those rules, 
there's a lot of room to have fun as a creator, mm-hmm. but those rules do have to be recognized. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, like I said, it just it just amazed me how that plays out into it. I mean, I remember, uh, of course, I think recently there's a there's a new kids show where the vehicles are have their own sentience and they're going around doing things. And then there was an issue I think it was like a year ago with the new Harley Quinn cartoon where there was supposed to be an intimate moment between Batman and Catwoman. And they talked about, these are things that Batman doesn't do. I remember hearing about that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I I don't know what age range the audience that is listening to this is, but yes, yes, I do remember that particular thing. And, Batman engaging in a certain intimate act that is, of course, natural. But again, when you're talking about Batman, you really cannot go there. Because here's the thing about this. Once you go there once, it's basically the genie bottle that you've opened that you can't close back. Mm -hmm. And then the floodgates open and everyone else says, well, see, it's already been done. So I can do it. Right. Right. So that's why you have to have the rules be the dam that holds back all the water, all the madness that will endanger Batman. Gotcha. Gotcha. That I I appreciate you sharing that, Claire. Wow. We we have a sponsor. So we've been sponsored. Have you ever tested your nerd kung fu? Have you ever tested nerd kung fu? Nerd kung fu, yes, your nerd kung fu. Now I know what you're thinking. What is nerd kung fu? Because it's not like we're gonna get a bunch of nerds fighting in a ring. But maybe it's about how you look. Maybe it's about being able to show off that nerd thing that you dig. You know what I mean? Do you like The Office? Do you like Star Wars? Do you like Jurassic Park? Do you like video games, anime, movies, etc. Because if you do, you can get your nerd kung fu on. In the description on the podcast, there will be a link. You can go there and you can order up to your heart's desire on anything from shirts to socks to posters and all sorts of things. Even The Godfather. So if you're down into movies and video games and comic books and or things like that tv shows even i mean like i said the office firefly is represented they got all sorts of stuff it's all legally licensed official stuff jingle spider uh what's your nerd kung fu uh my nerd kung fu is weak but i feel like by following the link in the description i might be able to make it stronger smider what's your nerd kung fu my nerd kung fu is a southern style it uh is very fast very aggressive Mostly uses just the two first knuckles on my hand to knock people out, but that's only because the stunt people are kind enough to fall over. It's up to you how your nerd kung fu is. We appreciate you checking it out and grabbing the link and getting your stuff from nerdkungfu.com. Uh, so somebody that we don't have to worry about anything like that happening to, because we all—I'm sure you have your own Bible for this character. And that's Judge Kim and the Kids Court. I want to let you yes. talk about this and how what inspired this children's book and, and, and everything that came with it. So Judge Kim and the Kim's Court, you know, it really started. So my co-writers of the children's book are Sean Martinborough and Milo Stone. The artist is Chris Jordan. 
So we all have backgrounds that go back to New York School of Visual Arts, and we've known each other through our careers, and we came together, and it started with Sean Marnbro having this idea and understanding that, you know, children are taught a lot of things in school, but they're not taught about the law. And the law is very important. Our relationship to the law, the relationship of people of color in America to the law, mm -hmm. right? And so he thought, what if we could teach kids the law in a way that was fun and interesting and not get into all the legalese, but deal with the basics. And so Sean and Milo and I came together, came up with the character Kim Webster, who's um, a judge. She was inspired by her mom, who's a judge. And so she has a treehouse in her backyard, and that treehouse is the courthouse for the kids' court. Mm -hmm. And so the kids of the town come together and Judge Kim hears them out in a case, right? And then she has her dog, Digger, who's basically like her right hand. And this teaches children about conflict resolution in nonviolent ways mm -hmm. and empathy. And these things are truly important because we're in a society in which we're taught that empathy is a weakness, which in fact, it's really a strength. It's strength of character where conflict resolution must be violent, mm -hmm. when in fact, one of the greatest arts of human society is our capacity for intelligent debate. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to create this children's book series and really connect with kids in this way, it's an honor. We're very happy to have our publisher, Simon & Schuster, supporting us with the book. The first book is out now, The Case of the Missing Bicycle, and then book two, which is going to be called The Case of the Doggy Defendant, is going to be coming out next January. And so we're really happy with the positive response We've gotten so far, we've had, you know, people who were kind enough to take pictures of the book with themselves, their kids. We've gotten support from Erica Alexander, from um, David Benioff, the co-showrunner of the Game of Thrones. And so many people have come together to embrace and show support for Judge Kim and the Kids Court. And, you know, for myself personally, it's really important to give back. You know, Milestone is the company that gave me my first opportunity. And so I always have to think about giving back. And it's of paramount importance to start giving back with children. Yeah. You know, even more so than adults and teenagers, but children, right? There's something very, very primal there, very core. And when I was a kid, there wasn't a book like Judge Kim. And the kids court. When I was a kid, there wasn't a superhero like Static, mm -hmm. right? So we're in an amazing time right now, and it behooves us as people who have the opportunity to create these stories to connect with the newer generation mm -hmm. of writers, 
art is, who knows where these people are going to go in their lives. Definitely so. And so we want to make sure that before we get to the end of the show, we want to make sure to let people know where, we're not quite there yet, but let people know where they can get the book and things like that. We'll let people promote that as well. You mentioned something about giving back and of course about giving back to kids. I'm going to talk to you a minute about you as a kid. Because okay. you mentioned about how these weren't things that were around me when I was a child. So what kind of things did a young Joseph Illich geek out to? Wow. So my mom was a supporter of my reading, and she understood that comic books were a part of that. And so she bought me comic books every week, and I ate them up. I was a big fan of the Legion of Superheroes. Okay. I love the idea of all these different young people from different backgrounds and different planets with different superpowers coming together and having a club and then working together to defend the galaxy, working with the science police. That was a really cool idea to me. And so I really geeked out on Legion of Superheroes. I My father was a big fan of war comics and science fiction comics. I was a DC head until the fourth grade when I discovered X-Men. And when I discovered X-Men, I became a Marvel head. And okay. I didn't become a DC head again until Crisis on Infinite Earths. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, I am a fan of both companies now. But when I was younger, it was definitely back and forth. And... It had a register of how cool you were perceived. When I was a kid, DC, on the street, DC stood for dumb comics. <laughs> okay. Like, you're not reading Avengers? You're not reading X-Men? You're not reading the Hulk? You're reading Superman? You know what I mean? So the characters and their relationships with us as we grow up, they change. But um, I was a real DC head in my earlier years, in my earliest years. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about that as it relates to it. I know for me, my big comic book awakening really was more that 90s, late 90s era X-Men and the death of Superman and stuff like that. We're oh, talking, yes. We're celebrating the 30th year. How old do I feel? One, one, 100%, 100%. Next year, 2023, is going to be the 30th anniversary of my start in the comic book industry because I started at Milestone in 1993, which is the year when it started publishing comics. That's mind-blowing to think about the different journeys we take in that. Yes, so, yes, indeed. But it's beautiful, and that's the thing about it. It's, it's. I was at work today, and somebody made the comment about, well, you know, uh, if you don't like pineapples on pizza, uh, you know, you can not, you can choose to not like pineapples on pizza, but that doesn't mean you're not wrong. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Everybody likes what they like. If you live in a world where everybody likes the same thing, that would get real boring real fast. So, Absolutely. It's not about we don't all have to like the same thing, but we should all respect each other's opinions as long as those opinions do not involve hurting other people uh -huh. or impeding on rights. <laughs> but when it comes to pop culture, whether you like the Christopher Reeve Superman or the Henry Cavill Superman, whether you're into the MCU or the DCEU, Ultimately, this is an amazing time for pop culture. 
There's literally too many things out there to watch. Right, right. The only way you could watch it all is if you do not have a job. And so <laughs> we should embrace and celebrate this golden age instead of beefing with each other on Twitter mm-hmm. about you liking something I don't like and me liking something you don't like. Right? That's not <laughs> that's not that's not important because the fact of the matter is depending on how old you are we never dreamed we would be in a world where everybody knows the name Thanos. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Let's yep. enjoy it. Yep. I, uh, I never will forget, uh, I had a cousin. I was reading a Black Panther comic. And uh, I had a cousin come to me. He says, you read this? I was like, yeah. As much as I can get of it. This was back in the Mark Texariah uh Yes, the yes, the Christopher Priest Tex era. Oh yes, and, yeah. I was, I was like, first of all, Mark Tex around artwork. Give me as much of that as I can get. And then I mean, come on, good Christopher Priest writing of it. I was just like, this is incredible. And but people are just like, dude, you're black though. It's like, what difference does that make? It's like it's literally Black Panther. Like, I'm just, <laughs> it doesn't matter. But it's just like, but 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 black people don't do that though. I was like. Black people don't do what? They, they don't. They don't do that geek stuff. So it's like, why? Yes, that would that would be another interview in and of itself. <laughs> talking about blackness and geekdom, growing up, that is a very complex subject. But suffice it to say that I believe that we are now at a place where those two things don't have to be separate and your blackness is not questioned by your by your geekness and by the way they can be married just to say this uh whenever you want to have come have that conversation let me know i will i will break plans just to sit there right conversation (laughs) all right because that one that one we'd have to really go in Uh right but okay so noted Yep, definitely. So, um, one one other question I want to ask before we before we wrap this up, and I feel like it's a very important question. Uh, all of the comic book characters that you've worked on, this vast sea of characters, creations, and editorial things. And I don't yes. mean to ask this like, tell me who your favorite child is, but okay, who is one of the favorite characters that you've worked on? Cassandra Kane, that girl, beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, I when you're there for the characters being created, in a way, you're, you know, you're part of a family. So I consider Cassandra Kane my niece. I call her Cassie, right? I was there when Cassie was born, helped bring Cassie into the world to see her out here, like almost two and a half decades later and she's so amazing and so many people love her and felt validated by her existence. That's just amazing. That's great. So Cassandra Kane's definitely one of them. I think Milestone's Rocket, Raquel um, Irvin is one of the best superheroes ever created. Uh And I have a special affection for Black Canary and Oracle, the Birds of Prey, Uh and specifically Barbara Gordon as Oracle. Gotcha. That is the best version of Barbara Gordon to me. In my mind, Barbara Gordon is Oracle and Cassandra Kane is Batgirl. That's the way I see yeah. it. Yeah. 
I, I could I, I could I could dig that. And I, I think one of my favorite moments in the initial run of Batgirl was uh, she signed. So there's a young child there who's deaf as well, and so the little girl says something to her like, "I'm scared." And she signs back, it's okay. Monster unseen is more scary than monster seen. And what she was saying to her was, be calm. I'm not here for you. I'm here for them. And I'm their monster now. Because she went, I mean, it was like 12 or 13 guys. She just read them their rights. And just <laughs> she's Why one of the best girl. She's one of the best fighters on planet Earth. I mean, she's Cassandra Kane is one of the best fighters on planet Earth. That's just a fact. Taken Batman to task multiple times. I'm like, not many people can say that. Yeah, is- no, she's hit him. She's hit him with blow. She's made Bruce Wayne bleed, mm-hmm. and Bruce Wayne has been taught by some of the best, mm-hmm. including Lady Shiva, Cassandra's mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that storyline was epic, where she had to train. To, once she started being able to speak, she had to retrain herself to be able to fight to the yes. death. Yes, 100%. I remember yeah. when we were working on those issues. It was great. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. It was beautiful. So uh, before we wrap up, I do want to give people this opportunity to get links and stuff to be able to get Judge Kim to the kids' court. So that way they can go out and support you with that. Any other things you want to send them to? All right. I really appreciate that. So... You know, my website is josephillidge.com, J-O-S-E-P-H-I-L-L-I-D-G-E.com. There's a Judge Kim page, which will lead you to the link where you can buy Judge Kim. You you can also go to Simon & Schuster's website because they're the publisher, and you can look for Judge Kim and the Kim's Court. If you want, you can go to Amazon. If you have a Barnes & Noble, you can go to Barnes & Noble and order it. So the book is out there for everyone. Um, it's also in Target and Walmart. Wow. So check a Target or Walmart near you. And other than that, I'm there on the socials. How much longer I'm going to be on Twitter is to be determined. But <laughs> I'm Joe Illidge on Facebook. I am Illmaster1 on Instagram. And again, my website is josephillidge.com. And that shows my career and different projects and gives people a bit of a snapshot of who I am and what I've worked on. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, it's been an honor again. Thank you for coming on. Uh, guys, this has been a conversation with me and Joe Illich. You've had a pleasure of being a part of. Thank you for joining us. Above all else, be blessed. Be a blessing to somebody, guys. Take care.